this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining me in this high altitude conversation where we have the chance to talk to the decision makers, the people at the top, the chairman and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organizations and indeed often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something to reflect on and perhaps utilize or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognized as our top problem solvers and the one feature they all have in common is recognized management success in organizations of substance. Our guest today is a man who started his working life as an accountancy clerk, switched to the practical and trained as a butcher, and subsequently became general manager of his family's butcher shops in Gisborne. He moved on to larger roles in the meat industry, served on the National Association in the industry, and drove the development of a mutton export business before embarking on the establishment of a sophisticated boneless meat processing operation to prepare pot roast product taking lamb from the farm to the United Kingdom customer as a packaged item. His work and standing in the industry saw him appointed as Chair of Freezer Investments to focus on a restructure of the major portion of the New Zealand meat industry. An influencer and force for change in the sector, he was awarded the 1990 Commemoration Medal for Services to New Zealand. He subsequently became an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. In 1993, our guest started a meat processing and exporting operation, Greenleaf Premier Meats, and as chairman he drove that from concept to arguably the most efficient meat processing operation in the country. In terms of vision, utilisation and yield, it sets the highest industry standards. Where others in the industry cry difficult, the Egan management team, guided by his philosophy, find opportunity. Our guest has served as a director on numerous boards, and that includes those outside the industry he's made his life in. He's served as a director of New Zealand Rail and deputy chairman of the state-owned Landcorp, our biggest national farming enterprise. But it's outside the primary sector that this man has made his mark as someone special. He's worked for charities, mentored youth, and sent the benchmark for the term corporate social responsibility. He personally picked up responsibility for the rebuild of the Hamilton Cathedral and managed that project in a way the church described as tough-minded but compassionate. Peter Egan, welcome to High Altitude and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Peter, you once quoted your father as telling you to aim to be the best even if it was the best street sweeter. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, my father was born in Australia. He came to New Zealand in his 20s and his mother was in fact a Kelly before she married. And um, rightly or wrongly, we were told that she was a very close relative of Ned Kelly. So the fact of having a outlaw in our family history rather intrigued us. And so that's been something that's gone through the family, obviously, and you've been seen as an outlaw in the industry from time to time, I suspect, as well, have you? Absolutely. So early childhood in Gisborne, which is where you were brought up, just give us a little bit about the, the family there and what the family did. Well, we were a family of eight children, uh, two boys and, uh, sorry, um, six boys and two girls. We grew all our own vegetables. Uh, I had to milk the cow morning and night. Uh, we had chook, chooks. Um, we had gardens. And we were taught basically to work. Uh, my father was uh, very keen on education but I think as much as anything, it was to keep us out of trouble. And our mother was a very hard-working person, and she was a great woman of faith. And you kicked off an accountancy. How on earth did you start an accountancy? Well, I always liked 
to maths. Um, I wasn't uh, good at school. Uh, came dunce uh, in my standard six <laughs> uh, and uh, missed my school cert the first time because I was more interested in sport than study and having then been told that I'd be an old man uh, before I got my university entrance, which I finally did get. Uh, however, I still couldn't make up my mind and um, I got the opportunity to work in accountancy, which was with figures, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then a switch across into the, into the butchery. How did that occur then? Well, I did a set of books one day, took, took them into the partner and said, what do I put in for accountancy fees? He said, 100 guineas. And I thought, I'm getting paid eight pounds a week. He's getting 100 guineas. There's something wrong here. And an opportunity came up to do the books at the uh, butchery business, wholesale retail butchery business my father had an interest in, and I was paid £16 a week. And that really started me on the role of endeavouring to get ahead. And to do so, my typical day was uh, to cart the meat from the abattoir at five o'clock in the morning, uh, work on the dispatch and wholesale selling department deliver, and then delivering meat to the dairies till about 11, cutting up meat and learning the uh, mutton side of the business, serving on the counter 1 to 2, uh, 12 to 1, and then um, doing the office work, which I was able to do in about four hours, uh, leaving work at 5 o'clock and going to night school, getting home about 9 o'clock. And that was my job for about three years. And retail into the... into a different line of the meat bin just followed that, didn't it? Yes, it was a big big uh, business, really. We had 43 staff, and we were wholesaling um, uh, bacon, ham, uh, pre-packing and vacuum packing, and back in the 60s, that was really innovative. That would have been leading edge in the 1960s, oh, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I enjoyed the association. I would think it's probably the happiest times I had. And... <laughs> I mean, you've seen change go on in the industry from that day. I mean, that was leading. How many how many places did that sort of stuff, like vacuum packing, for example? And it wasn't being done widely yeah, back in the sixties. Right. Uh, today, uh, it is. Um, but we were doing retail packs of chops and mints and uh, pig pack sausages. I had six or seven uh, girls packing sausages all day, uh, and we were in fact uh, sending some of them to Auckland from Gisborne, so... Uh, Full domestic, though, all domestic in its it was, focus. Um, except that in about 1986, um, I did an order of four tonne of pork to Singapore. Right. And um, it always intrigued me that I cut the meat up myself. I packed it. Uh, I did the export documentation, uh, but it was the only export order I did out of the butcher shop. Right. And what happened to the butcher shops eventually? What, what happened to those? Well, uh, our father died uh, mid-70s, and um, within a week of him dying, we all sat around and we made a fundamental decision to look for an unlocking process so each family could go its own way. And uh, I was basically running the biggest part of uh, Dad's estate, and we, Joan and I, were in fact thinking of going farming, but circumstances 
uh, changed. I was in Rotary at the time and used to play Gordon Waddy squash most days. And um, I had taken over an ice cream factory and turned it into a boning room. And at the same time, the Meat Act changed uh, where all processors in New Zealand in canning and packing had to have export quality meat. So when the butcher shops were sold, we brought the shares in the local abattoir and uh, with the help of um, a regional development loan, uh, George Gear was the minister at the time, uh, Watties and I were able to start a new company which we called Advanced Meat and the word advanced was because Gordon didn't want to be down the alphabet. He didn't <laughs> like the word Watties. So A was important. A was important and that's how we got the name. Right. And that was in Waipukarau, of course, wasn't it? No, no, no. That, that, no, this was all Gisborne. This was Gisborne, was it? it before was the Waipukarau venture. Yeah. And um, it's the only time in my life I've had to ring um, my brother and say so I couldn't pay his bill uh, in the first month. Uh, I said I'll pay it the next month. And the next month I spent hours going through the figures again because I couldn't believe them. Uh, the margin that in fact was there and it was all in the value of the pelts. And uh, we moved very quickly on from that. Uh, the opportunity came up to buy half shares in the local works, which we did. It had been unprofitable for 10 years. And uh, with the help of um, an ex-school friend who Weddell had wanted to put in as manager, um, David Guscott and myself, we turned it around, made it profitable. Uh, and then the opportunity also came up uh, out of the blue uh, from the meat board that would I go to England and have a look at uh, bringing the technology used in turkeys for a lamb roast plant and um, that's a story in itself. Right, And that was a concept that didn't come from you, it was, it was injected was it? So it was injected by the chief executive then of the meat board, Jim, uh, Jim Bremner. Right. New Zealand had a real problem. We were, in fact, killing the lighter weight lambs and rendering them down. Uh, the kill was up around 36, 38 million lambs at that stage, and there was just no market uh, for them. So it was one of these things that they said was urgent. Uh, the board had taken ownership of the product and was uh, responsible for marketing it. And uh, while the industry fought the meat board generally, I had a philosophy that if the rules change, then just play by the new rules. And we did very well while the meat board had ownership. But the opportunity to, in fact, uh, go to England at short notice, evaluate it, cost it, and presented a feasibility study to the board. Um, I did that on a Monday and I was on the railway board at the time. We had a board meeting and I put the four copies on Jim Bremner's desk on 8 o'clock Monday morning. And at midday that day, Robert Muldoon, the Prime Minister, devalued the New Zealand dollar by 20%. <laughs> Which would have slightly impacted on your report, I suspect. Particularly when I had $8 million worth of imported machinery right. and most of the sales were in pounds. So I picked up the copies and uh, there weren't Excel spreadsheets and computers in those days. So I reworked the figures, but I had to get them back into Wellington or get them in the mail by Wednesday. They were all typed in those days, were they physically typed? Yep, and uh, some of it even handwritten in this case. Uh, and I finished it late at night on the Wednesday, uh, put a handwritten note in, 
without consulting my co-director and the event of the board wanting to go ahead, we'd be prepared to take 50% equity to sign, build and commission the plant. Kind regards, Peter. Right. And um, a day or two days later, I got a ring to say, would I go back to England and negotiate a contract? And that's that's where that, that all came from. That's where it all came from. And who were you talking to in Britain then? Who was the person in Britain who was the key? It was a um, Bernard Matthews, uh, who was uh, the leading turkey producer, uh, and he ran a very successful business. The first meeting I had with him, I, spe- I landed in England on a Sunday, had a meeting in London Sunday afternoon, got the train to Norwich, looked through his plants Monday and Tuesday, and then met this uh, high-profile businessman, Bernard Matthews, and his first questions to me was, uh, I want you to tell me, Mr Egan, what's wrong with my plants? And I said, it's not my place, that's not what I'm here for. He said, I want to know whether you know your job or not. So being young as I was, I pulled my chair up in front of his desk and I rattled off 10 things that was wrong with his plant. And he turned to his managing director and said, he's not an accountant. <laughs> and I said, I never said I was. Um, and uh, he asked, had I signed the confidentiality agreement? I said, no. But if uh, you say what I've seen is confidential, it will remain so. And uh, we, in fact, became very good friends um, uh, from then on. I did, at that very first meeting, uh, when asked how soon we could have a plant up and running in New Zealand, and this was in September uh, 84, I said, yes, I could have it up and running by the 1st of May next year. Uh, Bernard said not even he could do that. And I said, well, let's leave that one on the table. Well, in fact, we turned out the first lamb roast at 11 o'clock at night on the 1st of May, 1985. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I rang Bernard and reminded him of what I had said. And he said, well, you're wrong again, Egan. It's still the 30th of April here. (laughs) So he caught you by one day, didn't he? So that was the Waipukarau plant. That was the Waipukarau plant, yeah. And that was designed quite differently, really, wasn't it? Ah, oh, yes, yes. It was a lamb cutting plant. We were doing 14,000, uh, sorry, we are doing 7,000 lambs a day. Right. Um, and uh, we used new technology on mechanically deboning um, uh, the shoulder, uh, which I'd gone to Denmark and helped design with the engineers there. And we also had 33 women uh, Frenching the lamb rack, and uh, took the opportunity, in fact, to design and have a machine which would do these racks with the help of about three women. Right. And so the Bernard Matthews thing, though, it went, it went through under advanced meats again, didn't it? It was still advanced meats in those days. And advanced foods. Advanced foods, foods yes. Right. We, it was a joint venture between the meat board and advanced meats. Right. And, and what happened to that ultimately then? Did... Uh, out of the blue, Watties had a board meeting in Gisborne. They, in fact, uh, asked if I would sell my meat interests to them. They had brought into, oh, no, sorry, Waitaki had brought Bothwick's New Zealand after Watties had turned it down on my advice. Um, and they wanted to bring all their meat interests together. So they asked, would I sell my shares and come and look after the their meat, total meat interests, probably an advisory 
role as much as anything. Uh, and I engaged a bro- broker's firm in Wellington who negotiated a price that I just couldn't turn down. Right. And so that was the move to the next to the next stage. Yeah. And Greenlee, how far behind that was Greenlee then at the end of that? Oh, that, that was... Um, quite a few season. years, wasn't it? So it was a gap in there where you did quite a bit of work on a national level. Yeah. I, for five years, I really operated as a, a corporate director. Right. I would leave home six o'clock on Monday morning, open the office in Wellington and would very often be down in Invercargill or in Christchurch in Auckland, getting home either Thursday night or Friday night, reading board papers all weekend and getting back on the bus again on uh, Monday morning. And you'd have seen some of the, I mean, horrific collapses really, wouldn't you, in in the New Zealand meat industry area. I mean, there was Fletcher Meats, wasn't there, in the South Island, if I recall correctly. There was Waitaki. They all sort of came together, didn't they? Were there any particular circumstances that sort of blew that out? Um, the the board, when the board started Freesia, their instructions were to get the farmer a better return for lamb. Right. And when you think, that, you know, 15 to $20 a lamb was what they were getting then, Everybody thought I'd spend the time overseas looking at markets, and I believe the problem wasn't there. The problem was in the cost of processing here in New Zealand. The way in which we handle it from New Zealand, from the farm through to the actual market. market. And um, that really set me on a road to work with both Watties and uh, Fletcher Challenge. Uh, And collectively, uh, we took control of Waitaki. And uh, while it was going all right, um, a major foreign exchange transaction uh, really caused the banks to give the ultimatum that they would, in fact, uh, have to put it into liquidation. Waitaki had a negative pledge, and under a negative pledge, you can't go to receivership. You've got to go to liquidation. Mm -hmm. And they gave us an ultimatum on a Thursday, saying that if the shareholders didn't put in more capital, uh, then they would be filing for uh, liquidation the next week. Mm. Uh, We agreed to meet on the Monday. In the meantime, Pat Goodman and I advised to David Longy, the then Prime Minister, that it could be 10,000 people put out of work 10 weeks before Christmas and that this was going to be a major and would the government consider statutory management of Waitaki? Um, David was a good listener, uh, said to let him know how the meeting on the Monday went, but he gave no commitment. Uh, And the Monday morning, (coughs) we met with um, six or eight bankers because most of the banks were involved. And again, they came on strong, uh, insisting that there be more capital. Uh, Pat very courteously advised them that there was not going to be any more capital put in. And uh, they said, well, that's it, really. We've got the papers drawn up by two o'clock. We will be filing them. And unrehearsed, Pat turned to me and said, well, Peter, would you mind just slipping out and letting David know that that's the decision? And I got as far as the door before the banks and said, David who? And Pat said, David Longy. Um, And explained to them that we'd had a meeting with him on the Friday and that uh, as long as we let him know before 10 o'clock on the Monday morning, um, then Waitaki would be placed in uh, statutory management by midday. 
which took out the banks right out of the action, of course, didn't it, at that stage? Uh, Pat and I both left the meeting, gave them 10 minutes to make up their minds. And that's when um, we went back in. They said, well, did we have an alternative? And I suggested that Free should be responsible for drawing up a restructuring of the meat industry. And that's really what sent me on the pathway of uh, really basically uh, restructuring the meat industry. And it was quite a significant restructure too, wasn't it? It saw stuff distributed uh, north and south. Um. Oh, yes. We we broke up Waitaki right. uh, and negotiated for Alliance to take uh, plants, AFCO and Richmond's were going to, but withdrew at the last minute. Right. Uh, we'd also, uh, in discussion with the banks, who in fact were very good um, about it, uh, we worked well with them, uh, had arranged for certain plants to be closed because the base problem was that we had too much killing capacity to match the stock availability. Right. And that was a fundamental problem. You mentioned earlier on 33 million lambs or something or other. How yeah. many today are we putting out? We're putting about 18, uh, 19 to 20 million now. So it's down significantly, oh, isn't it? Oh, it's just about down 50%. Right. Yeah. What's going to happen in the future with that? Will it continue to fall in lamb? Well, lamb today, uh, um, that 15 to $20 lamb is now $150 a lamb. Right. So I feel um, vindicated to the stages that we did in restructuring the industry. And the secret really is to try and get capacity to match availability. Mm-hmm. They've also done a very good job, the industry, in using the technology and further processing of the products. And... Um, Lamb today is a well-sought-after world product, and I think because of the shortage of it on the world market, it'll always have a very good value. So how do you jump from lamb to beef? (laughs) Well, I'd made an investment in Health Threes, which I was chairman of, and uh, I was intrigued with the investment, but I didn't understand the vitamin industry, and it wasn't me. (laughs) And I got a ring one day to, from some chaps who uh, said that they had an option to buy Aussie James's uh, cold stores in Hamilton and they were thinking of putting on a beef plant. Uh, would I be interested in financing and becoming in with them? Well, the upshot is that we did decide to go ahead with it. Um, we built a, a slaughter floor and a boning room in a matter of 10 weeks and we're underway, Uh, and in the first eight months, we'd lost $800,000, and the other shareholders uh, called a meeting, saying that they couldn't afford to take this sort of loss, and I said, well, and would I buy them out, give them their money back? Uh, I said, well, the shares were only worth 75 cents now, I'd give them 75 cents, and we left them again to think about it, I uh, went for a walk around the block and my brother John, who was on the board with me, I said, am I still ho- hopeful that the business would do well? And I said, yes, I'm comfortable. Uh, it was a matter of, in fact, sending stock to, particularly the bull meat to Mexico right. to get quota. Right. And um, from there, um, the upshot was that they, I gave them their money back. Uh, our family became the sole owner of Greenlee and... Uh, we, in fact, have never looked back since. And that first year, I think we made a profit of $2,000. But it's a high-tech plant, isn't it, in terms of a beef plant, really? I mean, it looks like a suburban factory. It doesn't actually look like a meat plant, does it? No. 
I've always dreamt of having the best plant in the world, right. and we've got it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt. We're getting a lot of overseas visitors, and we pick and choose who we show through it, but we have used technology, uh, and we've used the skills of motivating people. Uh, those have been our two successes. We've talked before about the culture, and in fact we even had some people who you kindly showed through the plant, and I think the comment afterwards was, we could build a culture like that, we'd be envious. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot in that culture because, as you mentioned, I think recently the turnover has been non-existent amongst the senior people, hasn't it? Literally. Yeah, it, it's worked well. Um, you know, Greenlee has moved from strength to strength. Um, all capital until a few years ago was ploughed back into the business right. uh, to make it financially sound. Uh, we adopted... Um, the best that we could in material handling and now that's the cartons and uh, having seen manual sorting of cartons after they were frozen uh, drove me mad and six of us went and evaluated uh, handling methods in Australia and we were going to use robotics um, in both the storage and the separation came back, costed it out, and it was going to cost $26.5 million, 2% return on funds. And uh, we cleared the desk and said, right, that's it, we're scrubbing that idea. And to this day, not one, there were about six of us around the table and we just kept testing ideas and moving from around in a matter of two hours. We came up with an idea, in fact, to use mathematics um, and the multiple of four uh, to use the technology that was then being used for in the frozen chicken industry. Right. Um, and we basically built a blast freezer that we used while it was being frozen to sort the products. Right, so it's sorted inside the actual chilling area. Absolutely. It's, it's running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that cuts out the time. Uh, distribution from killing through to leaving the door of the factory. Yeah, well, we used to have 18 people sorting these cartons. Uh, we now have uh, two mm. and uh, turning out 5,000 cartons a day. Right. And where we used to turn out um, about 250 different products, say, in a week, uh, we're now turning out about 1,100 products, up to 300 a day uh, different and they're all automatically sorted into pallet loads. So it's, it's certainly one of the, the sort of stellar plants in New Zealand, isn't it? And it's got um, a huge reputation for that. So the meat industry itself in New Zealand, though, it's one of our important industries, and yet it seems to be really hard to move it forward. So where does, it, where does the industry go from here? I mean, what's happening? Is it going to be under threat from other product? Uh, the, meat, the meat industry's in pretty good shape. Um, the stock availability is matching the livestock within reason, uh, particularly in the beef. It, um, and I, I think that we have all stepped up and producing a good, clean product. Um, further processing has come in uh, more and more. Uh, the advent of the barrier films has allowed us to send chilled product uh, fresh and frozen by sea or by air. By sea as well. Oh, yes. We can, we can deliver um, 
fresh product to Vancouver, uh, to the supermarkets in Vancouver, uh, and use the time on the water for the ageing. And what's the shelf life of, of some of those fresh products then? It's got a good shelf life, 12 to 14 weeks. Right. And uh, I did catch them. They had a couple of cartons of rumps one day that were outside that 14-week shelf life, and I offered to buy them, pay them half price for it if I could eat it. Right. And it would be the best rump steak I've ever had in my life. So it aged well and carried well. Yeah. So the shelf life is a nominal thing, but in fact the, the product is... is pretty well preserved during that course of that. Ah, yes. And again, the technique of having a stable, uh, chiller environment. Right. And uh, we think that we have some technical know-how on ageing that I pinched from the bacon industry. (laughs) So what would happen if you were sitting down today looking at the meat industry and looking at the fact that we produce animals well? I mean, how would you shape the meat industry in New Zealand and what would you be doing with it? If you had a clean sheet of paper... Well, first of all, you, you've, got to, you've got to meet the environmental requirements of where you put a plant. You've also got to have stock availability and you've got to have the calibre of the staff that you want. Now, by saying that, there's, there's no sense in having a small plant doing fifty or 60,000 a year. You just won't have the ability to employ and the marketing people or the financial people. I think that we've got it right. Um, we're doing about 220,000 cattle now. Uh, we bought a second plant uh, some years ago uh, that came up. We were told about it on a Monday, had a look Monday night. They wouldn't let me have a look at it running. Uh, and uh, I convinced the board that we would buy it for $5 million on the Thursday. Uh, and I had done no other due diligence on it whatsoever. Right. But I had foreseen that the Greenlee Hamilton plant on its own didn't give me enough capacity to justify the size and the calibre of the people. And this has done that. Um, we're now, uh, Greenlee is now the fourth largest beef exporter in New Zealand. Right. Um, turnover of 360-odd million a staff of 460. And that's from a standing scratch in what year, roughly? Uh, 83, I think it was. So 93, sorry, 93. 93. So yeah. it's, it's in pretty short term, isn't yeah, it? Really? 25 years. Yes. Yeah. And so where are the markets? I mean, where are the future markets? Have you got some views <laughs> on, on those? Well, yeah. You have 30 or 40 countries we're exporting to. Right. And the markets have changed significantly. Um, the States is still our number one. Um it's, it's taking the majority of our boneless cow and bull meat, but it's quickly being challenged from China. Right. Um, and Korea, uh, South Korea comes in and out a little bit. Indonesia was until recently a very strong market, particularly for the offal meats. Right. Uh, but we're seeing the growth in China is becoming phenomenal. Um, we're one of the licensed uh, companies to send chilled meat into China and uh, since starting 50% of the chilled meat out of New Zealand into China has been Greenly Meats. Right. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, and we're, the biggest single customer now is in fact Chinese. Uh, they were here last week and they're asking us to give them another 30% increase in the volume that we're sending them. Good grief. What happens with alternate to meat? I mean, is there an alternative? I mean, I know there's some stuff going in the United States that people are looking at. Is there alternatives and what, what, what's its future? 
Yep, there's the Impossible Burger. Right. Um, I think the... Is that the one that's got the Brillo pad inside it? Is that the... Well, and the, there's the vegetable protein one. Right. It's an interesting exercise. Have you tasted them? No, no, I haven't. Um, but we have had people uh, at seminars in the States uh, discussing it. Uh, we're taking it seri- seriously to the point of view that it's just another challenge because when I started in the industry, we didn't have Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right. Uh, we didn't really have McDonald's to the extent. Um, so things evolve, but th- you've got to remember that the vegetable burger... Uh, lacks protein. Right. And nutritionists, even as recent as um, last weekend, have come out strongly drawing people's attention that the quality of meat versus plant protein hamburger is just not there and never will be. Um, There's uh, a story uh, being developed and going around at the moment uh, regarding uh, methane emissions and the worry that this is within the farming industry. But um, they tell us now that the concern of methane emissions on Air New Zealanders now, who are now serving the Impossible Burger, is becoming a problem. <laughs> so vegetable protein um, hamburgers uh, are not everything that they want to be. Right. So if we... If we um cast our mind ahead a little bit and look at the, the demands that are coming out of places like China. Are we going to be able to produce enough raw product to feed the meat companies? No, but I'm hesitant to put all our eggs in one basket. Right. Um, while, you know, China for us is a very reputable um, country to deal with. It, it, it's good. Um, we've got them picking up the Greenleaf brand uh, in China, their trucks are branded with Greenlee now, and we've got a very good relationship with them. But I, I think that we will always try and keep a balance because markets do change. Uh, Indonesia is currently bringing a lot more meat or beef, particularly out of India uh, and out of Brazil, um, but they're still taking a reasonable no- amount of offals. Right. So where did the Greenlee name come from originally? I mean. Who thought of that? Uh, Greenlee Fields was the name we're going to call it. Right. And there was a Greenlee Fields in Ireland. Right. So it was, in fact, from there that we just made, flipped it onto Greenlee. And uh, I didn't. I either wanted good initials, like I had with Advanced Foods AML, or I wanted a name that couldn't be shortened. And we've been very pleased with it. Coming back to some of the sort of the company management things, and you know, this is a private company uh, run by a family, and it's gone through a transition. So you've moved from uh, into the senior role, then into the elder statesman role, and then you've retreated home and let the youngsters get on with it. I mean, how do you manage those transitions if you're running a private company? What's the lesson for people? Communication, in one word. It's hard to put your finger on exactly, you know, the moment that it ha- happened, but. Uh, when I was working with the Bernard Matthews people, uh, we used to go and stay with him most years, and he started to get uh, Alzheimer's, and started to make little mistakes um, or commitments that he shouldn't have made, and I advised him that he should step aside, be foundation chairman, and let his managing director, who was a very competent guy, 
uh, take over. Uh, I thought I had him to agree to th that, but he changed his mind and I saw him stay on too long. I saw his managing director leave and I saw, in fact, the company uh, lose all its equity. And I thought, well, I'm going to take my own advice and make sure I don't have, make the same mistake. Uh, not easy to step aside when you've done it. I think it actually took me five years to completely let go. Because you built it. I mean, it's your baby, wasn't it? And then you're passing it over yeah. to someone else to manage. And, uh, you know, just I still get the um, board papers. I still get the weekly reports. Do you get the urge to ring them when you see no, the board papers? No, I, I did originally <laughs> uh, because um, our uh, lawyer uh, basically represents Joan and I on the board right. and it took me 18 months to get him to really understand the meat industry. But when we did, in fact, as a family uh, understand that I was going to step aside, we formed a charitable trust Right. And the children's idea as much as anything was, well, this will keep Dad out of our hair. Right. And um, they couldn't have been further from the truth because now I keep bugging them about the amount of money I want for the charitable trust. <laughs> but this is actually brings us on to one of the really important things that Greenleaf's done, isn't it, in a social sense. I mean, we talk about corporate social responsibility and businesses surviving in an environment where they, they're permitted by society to actually exist. And society then looks to them and says, what are you going to do for us? And so many of them or just don't do anything really in literal terms, do they? But Greenleaf's adopted quite an interesting policy in the way in which it handles its social responsibility, hasn't it? For yes, a private it, family, it's quite an unusual... It is, but it, it, it goes right back to your parents, really. Um, both my father and mother were generous in endeavouring to help people and we were taught, um, basically, that if you, you know, have the ability to help somebody, you should. So it's a values thing. To it, whom much is given, so from them much is expected. It, and I think that that's been setting our values. Right. Uh, Greenlee has got very strong values. Right. Um, and uh, they, they revolve around uh, integrity, uh, innovation, excellence and teamwork. Right. Those are our fundamental values. Now, you set up the foundation, or, or the family did, to keep you out of their hair, and, and there you are sort of with a foundation suddenly and obviously concerned to how much you're going to get in it <laughs> to deal with the next thing. So what did you want to focus the foundation on and, and, and what sort of contribution were you looking for from the company? Uh, the, we have got a... Um, the contribution is an agreed percentage or min the minimum contribution is agreed percentage but if they have a better year then it's they expected budget to come up yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't mind saying that um, they have had a very good year and I'm very satisfied with the contribution <laughs> they're making this year. So it'll be a good year for the foundation this year. Yeah. And so what's the foundation going to focus on? I mean it has focused on things hasn't it particularly? Well it? we one of the first things we did is um, we were supporting uh, the local Hamilton helicopter and on one visit I was quite impressed with what that was doing and asked if was there any opportunity to in fact take on the sponsorship of a helicopter and uh, the Taupo helicopter was available for sponsorship. Uh, we negotiated that and um, the idea was the foundation in fact would uh, do that. Uh, 
it was over 200000 a year, but we thought this was worthwhile. We're giving something back because farmers use it a lot. Right. And uh, the livestock manager um, was very keen on it, so we supported it, got it, and when we got the uh, photos of what they were going to paint on it, and this was the emblem of Greenlee and the bull, right. uh, we were all enthusiastic with it. I let them go ahead until it got to the bottom line. I then explained to them that they were, in fact, advertising the Greenlee Meats. Therefore, it was a Greenlee Meats responsibility to pay the bulk of the funding, <laughs> and I retained more funds than my foundation. Right. Um, and, of course, at the moment there's a big review going on and there's the threat that they will try and cut out the uh, green, the Taupo Rotorua helicopters. We're hoping common sense, in fact, um, uh, comes through because that helicopter is saving lives every year. In fact, I think you... you do you sponsor just the one or is it two now? No, you, just one. Just the yeah, one. Yeah. But the last time I saw the sponsorship, you'd only just started and literally it saved four people, if I recall correctly, didn't it? Oh, yeah, they'd be doing four, at least four rescues a week. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's really got a high profile. And, um, and has that gone to the farm? It goes on to farm to pick up people? And oh, yes, yes. It's... Uh, it's done a tremendous job, really, uh, particularly in the tourist industry. Right. Um, and we, we're proud to be associated, you know, with it. And we believe, we're hoping that um, government or the people responsible will see the need for that sort of helicopter in that facility. And the other things that you've been involved in have been around youth and also education, haven't they? Yeah, well, we've always been strong. Now, Father distilled that in us, uh, education. And we, we've done sponsorships of... Uh, we do about six sponsorships for children uh, every year now, uh, and we follow them right through to the university uh, and their yearly uh, sponsorship is dictated a certain amount on how well they've done. Uh, if they're not making an effort themselves, then we haven't, in fact, had to cut anybody out because we keep in communication with them. Again, it's the communication you're talking about? Absolutely. And they, they've been good kids. I can't get over how good the young people are. Right. I always say that they're cleverer than uh, my generation was or I was, but they're not as cunning as I was. <laughs> that, that relies quite so much on native cunning to yeah. get through. They've got the education yeah. behind them, haven't they? Yeah, but oh, there's some great youth coming forward. You, you, I mean, your commitment to the values also saw you on the cathedral, on the rebuild of the Hamilton Cathedral, didn't it? <sighs> uh, that happened in a quite unusual manner from what I can remember. I think you got a little bit frustrated looking at what they were trying to do with... Explain yes. just where that, where that came from. I think it's an interesting story. We are, we are both um, uh, good practising Catholics, we hope, and we fa found that due to a sick horse that Joan had, right. uh, we couldn't go to church on Sunday other than to the local cathedral at 10.30. Um, and after about a month going there, the priest got up and said that he was going to... Uh, extend the church a little bit this way and that and put in some toilets and put in a foyer uh, and driving home I said to Joan he's got it all wrong uh, and I went back that afternoon stepped out what I thought he should do spent Monday drawing it up took the plan into him on Tuesday and he said oh gee if we could do that that would be marvellous uh, 
I wonder what the bishop thinks. So we arranged to see the bishop straight away, walked in and the bishop said, oh, a long time since we've seen you, each other, Peter. And it was Bishop Brown. He, in fact, had been a curate in our hometown, Gisborne. Right. And um, he said, yes, uh, he felt, felt it was a good overall plan, but it would have to go through his committees. I made it clear I wasn't interested in that. It was either, you know, leave me alone and I'll get it done for you. Right. Um, you sort out your committees. And we basically got involved because of this horse. It was a full sister to Flying Babe, a New Zealand two-year-old uh, champion that Joan had bred. Um, it was a horse that she named Belle de Dure. We, in fact, named it Twiggy because it lost so much weight. It had an abscess uh, under the circulic joint um, and we threw every known medicine at it. It had blood transfusions, vet up from uh, Palmerston North. It was the best foal I think Joan ever bred. And um, the vet one Wednesday said to Joan, nobody's going to criticise you if you ask me to put this horse down. And Joan said, well, give me till tomorrow. So I took her a cup of tea and the next morning she said, would you mind helping down to see if Twiggy was still alive? I did, and not only was the horse alive, it was hanging its head out the door saying, where the hell are you? <laughs> and Joan nursed that horse back over 18 months. Right. It got a laminitis in the feet during that period and she sent it to Australia for a drier, warmer climate. It had a foal and its very first foal was in fact the winner of the Karaka Millions. Which is quite amazing, isn't it, really? All went round a circle. Right. And that's how we got involved in the cathedral. Right. Um, and the cathedral turned out to be a fairly successful revamp, but it really took me two years. It was more than a revamp, really. I mean, it's almost a total rebuild, isn't it? So. Yeah, well, when I had a six-wheeler truck inside <laughs> the cathedral, <laughs> um, even the bishop said, I didn't know I authorised this. <laughs> and I think you had some views about it being built like a New Zealand building rather than oh, absolutely. an English cathedral. And I got a lot, at the time, a lot of, crit not a lot, but I got criticised heavily by some prominent people uh, and I just said well we can't afford to build a European cathedral right. and I basically went ahead and I went to Australia had a look at churches and cathedrals over there came back and said we're going to build it and do it as a New Zealand cathedral mm. and uh, an artist um, from Auckland Michael Purvan was very good uh, I put him on a retainer for a year, which was the cheapest deal I think I did in me, because he did all the artwork and all the windows. Um, and it's turned out the test of time. Uh, even last Sunday we were there and uh, 800 people on a Sunday evening, right. a mass. Um, it's, it's quite superb, though, isn't it, as a building? And then they dragged you into others. No one suggested the Christchurch Cathedral in the midst of all this? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so what projects go forward from here, Peter? What, what do you do from here? I mean, I know the horses are still pretty prominent in feature. Yes, it's, um, it's always a dilemma what you do. You, you know, I often wake up in the morning and say, well, you know, what am I going to do all day? But I have some... Uh, PEP interests, I would like to see in the meat industry some creditation or certification uh, for the skills that the people get. 
you know, if you're a plumber or you're an electrician, you're a registered electrician. Well, nobody's a registered meat worker right. uh, as such. And uh, the skills that they're using today, uh, uh, particularly in hygiene, right. um, they can make or break us on the yields uh, because we're very fine. Uh, a 1% yield is worth about $800,000 to us. Right. So, in fact, it's a it's a tight margin business, isn't it? In oh, the yes. Industry? Yeah. And very easy to lose it if it's not well run. Run. Yep. Yep. And so, the the projects apart from the meat side. What about personal things outside? Do the horses still consume a bit of your time. I mean, obviously they do, don't they? Uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, Joan uh, fractured both her wrists um, a year or so ago, and uh, I've helped uh, feed out horses daily. Right. And she has the best team I think she's had in a long while going to race this year. Right. Uh, she's actually uh, making money out of them, so <laughs> which is pretty hard to do in the horse industry. So I I enjoy uh, the animal; uh, it's enjoyable. I've also um, dream of doing more with the foundation, where we work on a principle of trying to help people up rather than giving them a handout. Right, and there is the opportunity. Uh, to work with some of the other charitable organisations in the Hamilton area. Right. Um, we're having talks shortly. And it's interesting that two, at least two or three organisations have copied us in setting up a charitable trust. Right. So that rather than competing against each other, I would like to be the catalyst to bring them together to take on a major project. Right. But just not handing things out to people. Teaching them to catch the fish rather yeah, than giving them the fish. Absolutely. Right. Peter, Egan, thank you so much indeed for being with us. That's right. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for joining me and my guest in this high altitude conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please share this with your C suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well. <laughs>